Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let us today hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. I am glad to be with you. I'm glad to be your Josh this morning. The psalm we just heard read, our text for this morning, is a psalm that is a meditation on time. Moses, the man of God, is going to teach us to think carefully about the passing years. Now, before we turn to that psalm, that inspired psalm from the Lord, I want to take a moment at the risk of sounding pretentious to read you another poem. It's not an ordinary poem. We have to go back in time to understand the context. The day is October 29th, 1618, and we're in England in the Tower of London, and a man is writing this poem. His name is Sir Walter Raleigh. He has lived quite a full life. He is an adventurer, a new world explorer. He has been captain of ships, favorite of queens, but he has fallen afoul of current political winds, and he is sentenced to die the next morning. And as tradition has it, on this night, October 29th, he writes these words thinking about his life. Even such is time, which takes in trust our youth, our joys, our all, and repays us but with earth and dust, who, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. There's a poem meditating on time. And now you're thinking, why did they invite this guy to come here? What a happy way to start our Sunday morning. 
The subject of this inspired psalm and this poem is something that our culture doesn't want us to think about. Our passing years and the mortality that lays upon every human being. But here's why we must consider it this morning. Like that poem tells us, time will take all our youth, our joys, our all, and what it will give back is but earth and dust. And if we don't think about this, if we succumb to the way the world around us pushes us, we'll spend all our days trying not to think about this until we have no more days. In Christians, though we know we believe in life everlasting and the resurrection of the dead, we're, we're vulnerable to not thinking deeply about the subject of this psalm. And we become like a ship with all our weight above water. We tip and we bounce easily. There's no solid ballast to our souls that anchors us when we go through times, perhaps like we went through in the last 18 months, two years, when we recognize we're not in control of our lives. We're not even in control of the next breath we take. So together this morning, we're going to let Moses let ask this question of us. What should these passing years teach us? And let Moses drive us to the answer of Psalm 90, that we would seek in God what we cannot find anywhere else. So look with me at this psalm. If we were dividing this up, um, if we were singing it as a hymn, we'd say there are four verses. That's going to get confusing because we have verse markers. We're going to call it four stanzas to this, to this poem, this psalm. And it begins, verses one and two, first stanza, Moses tells us this, our God is everlasting. Verses one and two, you could summarize with that label, our God is everlasting. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before we think about our years, Moses wants to set the appropriate scale. How do you measure our years? What do you hold them up against? God, the God who is everlasting. But notice how subtly, even in these verses, Moses is contrasting us with God. God is our dwelling place. He has been so in all generations, or literally from generation to generation. Even there, Moses is reminding us, one generation will pass, and another will take its place, and God will remain the same. And then he goes on. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever anything had been formed, from everlasting to everlasting, you, O Lord, are God. Our God is, and he is unchanging. Now, there'd be a a wrong way to read that when you see uh, Moses saying, before the mountains were brought forth. That's a time word. It's like he's walking us down the timeline. I had perhaps the most graphic visual representation of this, um, this timeline that Moses is walking us down about eight years ago when my wife and I got to travel to Scotland. We are blessed with the trip before our first child was born. Someone said, we want you to go explore Scotland for 10 days, which is a great trip. I said, sign me up. Where do we go? I wanted the most Scottish experience I could get. So first we went to the Highlands, but then we went north of the Highlands. And we went to the, some of the farthest isles off the north of Scotland called Orkney Islands, a cluster of islands in the North Sea that are not the place you want to go if you like sunny beaches and calm days. The wind was constantly 60 to 70 miles an hour when we were there in February. And I asked one of the locals, is it always like this? He said, oh no, you should come back on a windy day. 
Apparently, windy days are 110 to 120 mile an hour winds. We wanted the full Scottish experience and we got it. But part of the reason we came to this island is to see a site called Scara Bray, which is the oldest intact prehistoric settlement in all of Europe. It dates back 5,000 years and it's an intact village. Literally, what happened is a storm blew sand and peat all over this village, completely covered it up at some point. And in the mid-1800s, the owner of this manor uh, has a beautiful manor house sitting up there, looked down after another storm one morning and realized there's now a village where I used to have a field. Uncovered it completely intact. It's been preserved. It's a world historical site. And you can go and visit and see this prehistoric site. So we went to the visitor center. And as you walk out, you pay, as you do everywhere, you pay and then you walk out the back door and you start on a path. And right away, I don't remember seeing anything telling me what I was looking at, but just stepped out and there was a marker that said D-Day invasion. And then we kept walking and there were more markers and they were historical markers, things from England's past. We quickly moved through things like the Magna Carta and we kept going. And as we walked along this path, more time markers appeared. We passed the pyramids. We passed Solomon's temple. We passed Stonehenge. We kept walking. Finally, after walking past all that, you arrive at the site as though you have walked through history and demonstrated just how far back you'd have to go to arrive at this site, Scarabray, past the pyramids, older than the pyramids, older than Stonehenge, all the way back. Now you come to the village. If we misread what Moses is telling us, here's what we might think. If you walk back far enough, plant the stake that says mountains formed, then we'll go a little farther and we'll find the marker God. But Moses doesn't do that. Before the mountains were brought forth, God is everlasting. It's as though we walk back that timeline. We come to the end, the marker that says the beginning of all things. And we don't find another marker for God. We find another dimension entirely the eternal abyss of everlasting God, the one who is the maker of time itself. That puts getting things into perspective into perspective, doesn't it? When we say that, we mean let a couple years pass. Let a decade pass. How about consider it from the perspective of the one for whom time is a work of his hands? Our God, this God, is everlasting. It's a wonder, even here, that we get to call this God our God and say to this God who is from everlasting to everlasting, you're our dwelling place. You are our home. You are the place that is safe for us. But before we can feel that comfort, Moses moves on. He's already subtly reminded us of our passing generations. And by the time we get to the second stanza of this psalm, he's going to hold up God and us side by side. Second stanza says this, our times are passing. Our God is everlasting, but our times are passing. The very first words God speaks in this psalm occur in verse 3. The only words, in fact. You, O God, return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And then he describes God looking at us. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Notice the movement from everlasting to a thousand years 
to a morning. We pass. In comparison to God, what are we? We are not even a blip. We don't even register on the scale. And before we move on, Moses wants us to consider this. Those words in verse 3 are an echo of Genesis 3, in which God, in punishment for Adam's sin, says, return to dust. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the banner Moses holds over our passing years, returning to dust. Now, the point of the thousand years in your sight, it's not so that you can calculate God years like you calculate dog years. You know, God years are this many compared to our years. The point is to say that no matter the largest scale you could think of, and this is writing before we have clocks and seconds, this is a, the most basic scale you can measure is mornings. And a thousand years on that scale is a long time, and it's but a passing watch to God. Our God is everlasting, but our times are passing. And that passing occurs because of the sovereign words of God, return to dust. Now I know what you're thinking. We haven't gotten any happier yet, have we? (laughs) Hang in there. There is more to this psalm than merely rubbing our noses in our mortality. But there's something instinctive in us, isn't there, that wants to push back. No, life is more significant than that. Seize the day. Live a meaningful life, your best life now. We, we instinctively rebel against this label that Moses is placing upon us. You're returning to dust, and it will happen before you know it. We push back with all kinds of slogans and bumper stickers, but I just want you to ask. Imagine having that argument in a cemetery. Moses wants us to consider deeply that we might move from our passing years to an everlasting abiding hope, but it won't happen unless we consider we really are passing. We are under the decree of the Lord return to dust. Now we instinctively resist that, but if you had enough money, the resisting of that might sound something like this. Came across an article a while back with this headline, Silicon Valley's quest to live forever with the subheading, Can billions of dollars worth of high-tech research succeed in making death optional? And here's how the article begins. On a velvety March evening in Mandeville Canyon, high above the rest of Los Angeles, Norman Lear's living room was jammed with powerful people eager to learn the secrets of longevity. When the symposium's first speaker asked how many people there wanted to live to 200, if they could remain healthy, almost every hand went up. Understandably then, the Moroccan Philo chicken puffs weren't going very fast. The venture capitalists were keeping slim to maintain their imposing vitality. The scientists were keeping slim because they'd read, and in some cases done, the research on caloric restriction. And the Hollywood stars were keeping slim because, of course. In response to a question from actress Goldie Hawn about an anti-aging molecule, one of the leaders suggested that a varied healthy diet was best, and that no single molecule was the answer to the puzzle of aging. Yet the premise of the evening was that answers and maybe even an encompassing solution were just around the corner. The party was in the kickoff event for the National Academy of Medicine's Grand Challenge in Healthy Longevity, which will award at least $25 million for breakthroughs in the field of anti-aging. Jean Yoon, a doctor who runs a healthcare hedge fund, announced that he and his wife had given the first $2 million towards funding the challenge. I have the idea that aging is plastic, that it's encoded, he said. If something is encoded, you can crack the code. 
It's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day, the majority of age-relating diseases. Yet Yoon believes, he told me, that if we hack the code correctly, thermodynamically, there should be no reason that we can't defer entropy indefinitely. We can end aging forever. Now I ask you, when you hold up the billions of dollars of Silicon Valley and the tech industry on one hand, and the decree of the Lord return to dust on the other, who will win? The, perhaps the understatement of the year in that it's a big ask in that article. It's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day, footnote, including every person on the planet. Now, you probably don't have enough money to invest in the anti-aging fund. Sorry if you did and I busted your bubble. But aren't we all prone to this same impulse? Let's at least not think about it. And maybe let, let's do some things so that we'll live longer. Make sure. Um, this is, I think you understand me, but let me lay the groundwork. This is not against medicine or appropriate uses of the common grace gifts God gives us to extend and preserve life. But it's an entirely different thing when we turn the corner to saying, no, it's not just that I want it to be a steward of what I've been given in life on this earth. When we go from that to, I want to live forever. I don't want to think about returning to dust. Don't even go there this morning. That's the place Moses is pushing on us. We might put it this way. If return to dust destroys all your hopes and dreams, you need better hopes and dreams. If this decree means the end of all that you have held dear, then you need more things to hold dear. You need a better vision. Because we are all under this decree of passing years. We will return to dust. Now that raises the question, why? Why would God do this to us? And Moses, in the next stanza, at the ends of this one, and in the next stanza, he is going to do that. He is going to answer that question. Our God is everlasting. Our years are passing. And third stanza, our passing is judgment. Beginning in verse 7, at the end of this first one, he alludes to it when he says, we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. And then at the opening of the next stanza, he makes it very clear. God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Our years are passing, and that passing is judgment. And Moses makes clear a judgment for sin. That's going to raise a ton of questions, I know. We'll address those. But it is the link that explains why would God pronounce this verdict upon the human race? Why would he say, return to dust, O man? Because we have sinned and rebelled against the God of life. Now, several things. You might be thinking, we're going to come to this, you might be thinking, doesn't that undermine the good news of the gospel that we sang this morning, that our sins are forgiven? Hold that thought. But before we get there, I want you to consider what Moses is telling us here. 
You, God, have set our iniquities before you. Even our secret sins are in the light of your presence. Before the everlasting God, we are laid bare. There is no hiding from this God. I've told our church before, if you could imagine walking out and having a sign behind you that projected every thought that ever crossed your mind, how many of you would ever leave your home? I wouldn't even leave my room. And yet, our secret sins are laid bare before God. There's an inevitable logic to the way Moses is teaching us here. There is an everlasting God. We are not everlasting. We are not everlasting because we are sinners. And do not make the mistake of thinking you can escape the sight of this everlasting God. There is no corner of the universe in which sinners can hide from this God. Now, there's more. There's more coming. There's good news embedded in there. But don't walk away practicing the folly that we all have practiced hiding from this God. It won't work. We even prayed it this morning. From the garden onwards, we have been hiding. And it will not escape the sight of this God. So then what about that question? What about does this undermine the gospel? When we say our years pass away under your wrath, are we not free from condemnation? Is there wrath upon us? Clearly, no. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Moses writes this, he's writing at a point in redemptive history when it's not yet clear what God will do to clear the guilt of his people. We're before the work of Christ. That's a partial answer. But the other answer is that the perspective Moses wants us to have, thinking about our passing years, we are very much still under the wrath of God. Not specifically punishing our individual sins, but imposed upon the human race and creation itself for our corporate rejection of God. And how do we experience that most clearly? Our bodies die. Our bodies, these earthly bodies, this outer man, as Paul will say, it will waste away because of the judgment of God upon our sin. Don't turn away from that reality. When I read that article, this is now the third time I've preached this sermon and read this article, every time I'm struck by the irony and the folly of what's represented in that article. Here's the irony. Who would want to live in this world forever? If, as Moses had just said, in this sinful world, our life is but toil and trouble. Why would you want to live forever in a world of toil and trouble or even 180 years? No thanks. That's the irony. We, apart from God, are clinging on to something that at our honest moments we should say, this is not life it is meant to be. The folly is that if this is God's judgment pronounced upon our sin, if we will return to dust, if creation itself is groaning, how could we escape this on our own terms and by our own resources? Moses, again, to use Pauline language, he is shutting up all mankind, hedging us in so that we will recognize there's nowhere to go. If this is the way the world is and the way God is, something has to happen. 
to give us a hope in a future. Something has to happen to return us to the celebration of verses 1 and 2, a God who is our dwelling place. Because our years are passing, and that passing is judgment. So what is it that turns the corner? What is it that makes this psalm not merely a depressing minor key psalm? It's the last stanza. After all that, here's the surprise. Moses says, still, our future is in God. Our God is everlasting. Our years are passing. That passing is judgment. But still, our future is in God. Verse 12, and from there to the end of the psalm, changes from describing what's taken place to pleading with the Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, Moses asks. What would that wisdom look like? Well, it's what Moses is going to pray right here. In the remaining verses, he is going to offer a prayer to this everlasting God, showing us how our future can be in this God. If you had to summarize or write little marginal notes about what he's praying, we could use three words. Presence, joy, and permanence. Presence. He says, return, O Lord. Come back. That is a poignant plea from Moses. Do you remember what God told Moses on Mount Sinai when the people had sinned down below with the golden calf? And Moses realized they have broken the covenant before the ink was even dry. They have violated everything they just said we will do. And God says, I will send you up to the promised land, but I won't go with you. I can't be joined to this sinful people. And what does Moses plead? No, Lord, if you send us to the promised land, but you don't go with us, it's not the promised land. Return, O Lord, is a poignant plea from Moses, the man of God. He's saying, I don't, in a psalm meditating on time, he never says, give me more years. He asks, give me better years. Come, draw near to me. Give me your presence. Give us corporately your presence. Have compassion on us and come back. Give us your presence. And what will happen when this God comes back? He will give us joy. It's a surprising turn after all we've said, isn't it? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And notice how he's going to use those same time words he's used to measure our passing years in the morning that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. All the things that add up to these passing years. Lord, if you return and give us your presence, there will be joy. Do you see the realism in that plea? In our years, we will see evil, but we can taste joy. Because of the presence of our God. When he comes, he changes the character of those mornings, days, years. Yes, they are toil and trouble. We will see evil. But when God comes, he brings joy in the midst of those circumstances. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. I know when I talk about joy in light of mortality and passing, that perhaps some of you, this lands very close to home, you know. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know where you come in to sit and hear this message this morning. I don't know whether you have perhaps heard something from a doctor that brings this very close to your mind. Whether you have laid someone in the grave. Or whether you're just walking through deep suffering. As one of my favorite teachers and writers, David Pallison, used to say, 
Every suffering has about it the taste of death. At its core, every encounter with deep suffering in this world tastes of that return, O man, to dust. If you're here this morning and talking about joy seems like it doesn't follow from all the the bitterness that goes before all that I've experienced, I don't know how we can make this turn to talk about joy. Let me just speak directly to you. First, notice what Moses is not doing. You notice the tone of this psalm. He's not whistling in the graveyard. He's praying in the graveyard. There is a world of difference. This is not casual, trite happiness that has no depth to it. This is a man confronting mortality and pleading, Lord, you're greater than this, and your presence will change this. This is not a flippant psalm. But there's even more. Notice the ending is all prayers. It is all petitions. What's the assumption behind that? We can't make this happen on our own. If you're here this morning, you're in those circumstances in which maybe the first part of the psalm resonates and talk of joy seems impossible. Let me just encourage you. Joy is not something you can conjure up by your will. It is the gift, the presence of the Lord. And it's not lying to say, I can't see anything right now but darkness. If you are in fact walking in dark circumstances. The danger is that you believe the light will never come. If you've ever had the experience of sitting outside in the woods watching the sunrise, being out early before dawn, especially if you're really cold, it feels like the sun will never come up. I've been freezing on a tree stand or doing photography and thought, I'm never going to be warm again. I am so cold right now. Darkness and war- darkness will live forever and light and warmth will never come back. But you know what's objectively true? Every moment you're in the darkness, you're one moment closer to the dawn. Though you can't see those passing moments, unless you have a watch, though you can't see the morning light coming, here's what you can do. You can face east. So that when the dawn breaks, when the presence of the Lord brings joy, you're looking in the right place. If you're here this morning and joy seems a distant topic, just face east. Point towards the sun. Wait for the return of the Lord. He will bring joy. The God who brings his presence to his people in the wilderness will bring you joy again. Don't buy the lie of the enemy. That in the dark, this time, morning's not coming. That's a lie. You are closer. We are one Lord's Day closer to the greatest dawn of all than we were last week. Amen. Joy comes from the presence of the Lord. And then the last plea, permanence. Lord, establish the work of our hands, Moses says. All this presents joy in a lasting form. Give us something permanent. And once again, isn't this a poignant plea from Moses, the man who wandered most of his life in the wilderness? You can imagine why Moses would say this, can't you? As a man who has been a nomad, leading a nomad people on the way to a home, praying, Lord, give us something that lasts. Our future is in the God whose presence brings joy and permanence. But now, 
we have to ask the question, did God answer Moses' prayer? Did Moses experience permanence? You can read Exodus and you can find the presence of the Lord and the joy that that presence brings. But if you have Exodus only, is there anything permanent? Remember where Moses died. Outside the promised land. The man who encountered God on the mountain, who saw the Lord face to face, still did not inherit the promised land. He still died a wanderer. And yes, the people after him went into the promised land, but that didn't last either. Did God answer Moses' prayer? Not if this prayer terminates only in Psalm 90. If its final destination is only on the pages of the Old Testament. But the man who met God on the mountaintop died on a mountaintop and was given another mountaintop experience. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses saw the work of the Lord. God granted this plea of his servant and brought Moses back to behold the greatest work of the Lord ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. With Peter, James, and John, and Elijah coming, Moses sees how permanence comes to a passing people. And in that decisive moment, Moses watches while Jesus descends the mountain. Until that point, some, nothing new had ever happened to grant lasting permanence to the people of God. But when Jesus goes down from the mountain to walk to Jerusalem and offer himself as a substitute for his people, something changed. When he rose victorious from the grave, he guaranteed us a future that extends beyond even this world. This is how passing mortal people can have a future in God. Our life does not end here. What shallow promises it would be if God said, I will take care of you in this life and that's all I can offer you. What a shallow response to return, O man, to dust if the Lord did not then pronounce, but I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, we still live in this world in which we physically are under the power of the Lord's anger. We will die. And yet there is a future beyond the grave. All of which is to say that that poem by Sir Walter Raleigh applies to us in its entirety. I said at the beginning there was more. It would seem that Sir Walter Raleigh was a Christian. He tasted the bitterness of life that Moses experienced and leads us to consider. But that wasn't all. For us, like Walter Raleigh, like Moses... Time is that thing that takes in trust our youth, our joys, our all, and pays us but with earth and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. Where, O oh death, is thy sting? Where, O oh death, is thy victory? Death is swallowed up in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, this is our future. Do you know this hope, this victory that Christ has bought beyond the grave? If you do, you have solid joys and lasting treasures. You have a hope.
that endures beyond the grave. May the Lord make us wise to consider and seek in Him what we can't find anywhere else. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom that numbers our days well and that that wisdom would draw us to Jesus, our resurrected Lord, in whom we have great, sure, and everlasting hope. Our years are passing, but what a hope we have. Make us people convinced of this. And in a world with nothing else to hope in, may we shine like lights in the midst of the darkness. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.